You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Let's pray to God together. Our Father, you are holy. You are the great I am, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Alpha and Omega. Lord, I remember in the scriptures when you spoke your name for the first time to Moses and you said, I am who I am out of the midst of the burning bush. And in that image, we saw a glimpse of your character and of your nature. While the bush was being Uh, not being burnt up, yet the fire still was being lit, we see that, Lord, you are sufficient in yourself. The fire burnt, and it did not need fuel. And you, Lord God, are a God who needs nothing from no one. You are sufficient in yourself. You are eternal. You are infinite. But in contrast, Lord, we admit that we are needy people. We are insufficient And I recall how Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Father, we turn our attention to your word now. Feed us, needy, hungry people. Feed our souls that we might be nourished by your spirit through your word to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have called us, worthy of the gospel which has saved us and worthy of your name, which is above every name. And in Jesus' name, we do ask this. Amen. Well, church, would you open your Bible with me to Colossians chapter 3. Today, we're going to consider Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to verse 17. Now, you might be wondering, did Sam and Mark and Jason coordinate wearing the same shirts, or was it a coincidence? It was purposeful because these are our camp shirts because this week is Harvest Summer Kids Camp and we are very excited for it. 180 kids will be walking through the doors tomorrow morning, many dozens of workers. If you're serving in any capacity at camp this week, could you just raise your hand so that we could acknowledge and thank you briefly. Thanks so much for the many In each services, people who are serving, thank you so much. Uh, Camp was one of the first ways that I was able to serve at our church when I was an intern back in 2010. It was also the first time that I had an anxiety attack because of camp. So pray for the workers this week. Pray that they would have resiliency. Pray that they would have energy. Pray that they would do all they do in love. And pray that the kids who participate in the camp would be saved this week. Let's get to the text. Colossians 2, verse 3, verse 12 to 17. I'd like to tell you a story. In grade 7, I experienced a time in my life that was exceptionally challenging. What can be challenging for a middle schooler? Well, I went from private Christian school into public school for the first time. Public school was challenging, and I couldn't put words to what I was experiencing until I became an adult and was able to travel around the world. Traveling around the world as you go from culture to culture, maybe if you move from one culture to another culture and are trying to integrate into that culture, you can experience what some people call culture shock. They speak the language I don't know. 
They have customs and traditions, I don't know. And they eat food, I don't know. And if you don't integrate and assimilate well, it can feel like you're, you, you don't belong. And it can feel like you don't really have a purpose. And that's what I felt when I went into public school in grade seven. That's what sometimes we can feel even in the church. Maybe you felt that at another church. Maybe you feel that at this church. That this is a place where you want to belong, but you don't feel like you have a sense of belonging. Where you want to have a purpose, where your, your participation actually gives a contribution that means something, but you don't feel that. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 17, the Apostle Paul tells the church to live by certain godly virtues. And let's look and see the result of what will happen if they live by those virtues. Look at verse 14. At the end, it says that they can be bound together in perfect harmony. This beautiful sense of belonging. Not only that, our purpose, you can see that in verse end of verse 15, and be thankful. End of verse 16, with thankfulness in your hearts. End of verse 17, giving thanks to the Father through him. Our purpose in the church is to be a per people that's characterized by thankful worship directed towards God. God's type of church is one that beholds his glory in worship and where we belong together in unity. What would you give to be a part of a church like that? If we want to be this type of church here in Markham, we must be marked by the same virtues that Paul told the Colossian church in the first century to live by. If we're going to be God's type of church that beholds his glory in worship and belongs together in unity, then we need to be marked by love, by peace, and by truth. So as we do, would you stand with me together to honor God as we read this word? Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 17. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to the Father through him. You can take your seat, church. If we're going to be this type of church, God's type of church, that beholds his glory in worship and belongs together in unity, then we need to put on love, peace, and truth. Notice the first three words in the text. Verse 12, turn your attention to the scripture with me. 
Put on then. Put on is a command, and then is a transitionary word that moves the line of thought from verse 1 to 11 into verse 12. Verse 1 to 4, Paul says we should seek the things that are above. Are you living your life in such a way here on earth that acknowledges Christ's authority in heaven? If we're then doing that, we need to do what verse 5 commands, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Remove anything that is sinful. And then the natural response if we're putting something off is that we should put something on. The first virtue that Paul commands us to put on is love. Put on love. If we're going to be the type of church that beholds God's glory and worship and belongs together in unity, we must be guided by love. And look at the reason that we're told here to be able to put on love. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then, actually, love isn't the first thing we're told to put on as God's chosen ones. We're told to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, and patience. And then love isn't even mentioned next. We're told to bear with one another and forgive one another. And then, at the climax, at the summit of the mountain of Christian relationships, we're told to put on love. Love is the summit of Christian relationships. But if we're going to be able to climb this mountain, we need to first acclimatize ourselves at the base camp of our identity in Christ. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is who you are, Christian. Chosen, holy, and beloved. What does this mean? What does chosen mean? Well, we can look at salvation from two perspectives that the Bible doesn't hold contradictory to one another. The first obvious perspective is our perspective, that we made a decision to believe in response to an invitation. Romans 10 verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The less obvious perspective but the one that I believe scripture teaches has the true magnetic force which draws us to salvation is the reality that the invitation was only made to you because God first chose you. This means, church, that as a chosen one, you have value to God. You're holy as a chosen one. You're set apart to have a relationship with God and to become holy as he is holy. We're beloved. That means that the disposition, the eyes that look upon you, Christian, from heaven are eyes from a father who cares for you as his beloved child. And that's good news because that means that I'm not valued and my self-worth isn't determined by the way that the world attributes value and worth. Your value, your true value, is not your bank account. It's not your closet and your wardrobe and your body image. It's not your family name. It's not your GPA. It's not your resume or your career. I have six gospel affirmations that I remind myself of regularly, especially when I'm discouraged. And one of those six is this statement. Your self-worth is not determined by your successes or your failures, but it's secure in God's love for you in Christ Jesus. 
What good news that our value is because we are chosen. We each are children of God. And what that means is that we are a part of a spiritual family. These are your siblings. And a good father isn't gonna condition his kids towards a behavior that causes them to believe that if they're gonna earn their father's love, they need to fight for it. Dad, who gets the last slice of pizza today? Who's gonna win the arm wrestle? Go. Dad, who gets to pick the movie tonight? Uh, Who did the most dishes yesterday? Do more now. A good father doesn't condition his kids to believe that they need to work for his love. In fact, if a good father sees his children fighting, won't that dad want to do everything in his power to have his kids maintain unity because he loves his kids both equally? And in the same way, if we're going to reach the summit of Christian relationships, that is love, that allows us to bear with one another and forgive one another, we need to know who we are in Christ. And then we need, like a climber moving up a mountain from base camp, needs to have the right materials and the right tools put on to be able to make the climb. These five godly virtues that follow will enable us to climb to the summit of Christian love. Put on a compassionate heart. A compassionate heart is a sincere heart. A heart with a sincere affection and care for others. Put on kindness. Kindness extends affection into tangible actions that promote good in the lives of others. Put on humility. Humility is a mindset that is liberated from thinking on self so that it could focus on thinking on others. Put on meekness. Meekness is a lowly attitude that is willing to surrender and waive its own personal rights so that the rights of others can be upheld. Isn't that what Jesus did when he came from heaven to earth? Isn't that what Jesus did when he died on the cross, a death that he didn't deserve for us? Put on meekness, put on patience. Patience will enable you to be able to forgive even when you've been unjustly wronged. Even if you are repeatedly unjustly wronged. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Some of us don't like to forgive because we want to control the circumstances. And if we are in debt, someone else is indebted to us because they've wronged us, we want to control that. And we want to hold on to that. We want, we want them to know you wronged me. How can we withhold forgiveness to others when we have been so freely forgiven by God? We must be ready to forgive much because God has forgiven each of us infinitely more. Are you living like this? This is the base camp that we must acclimatize to and the tools we must put on to be able to reach the summit of Christian relationships, which is love. Are you living by love? A love that reflects the self-giving love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that his disciples would be known by love. And when we truly have love, we truly have unity.
perfect harmony. If you want to tune a piano, you focus on one key. Middle C, the key that's in the very middle of the piano. And when middle C is in tune, the rest of the piano will be tuned to it and be able to play in harmony beautiful symphonies. That's what love is like. Love with a readiness to forgive and the virtues put on because I know who I am and I know who we are in Christ is what keeps us in perfect harmony is what will allow a sense of belonging amongst us. And that's not something that comes passively. That's something that must come through active contribution in the church. The church is not Cineplex. In Cineplex, you step into the building and expect that your consumer experience is laid out for you. All you need to do is follow the arrows. Nah, this isn't Markville Mall. This isn't Cineplex. We are each members of the body in Christ if we've believed in him and we must contribute to this type of belonging. It's not just gonna be passively come to us. Love will allow us to have perfect harmony. God's type of church is one that beholds his glory and worship and belongs together in unity. We must be marked by love. And if love keeps us in perfect harmony, what is the next virtue like? Peace. Well, I think peace when it operates in the church, is like the law of the land that governs the way that we behave. We must be guided by love and we must be governed by peace. That's the second virtue that we need to put on. We must be governed by peace. Look at verse 15, it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. This phrase, let the peace of Christ rule, is a command. We are commanded to let Christ's peace rule in our hearts. And embedded in this idea is the concept of submission. When the church submits to Christ's authority, his peace governs the domain of our community and our hearts. How does that work? What's it like? How can we submit to Christ's rule in our life? We've got a federal election coming up this fall, and Parliament is recessed, and all the political parties are going and traveling throughout Canada, telling us and giving their platforms, which define how they would govern if we collectively voted their party into power. A lot of parties are gonna present you platforms this summer. I hope you're actually gonna pay attention to it so you can know how to thoughtfully engage in our civic responsibility of voting. A lot of parties will present, present platforms. Only one party will actually govern. And when we collectively vote them into power, they will then have the responsibility of taking their platform, creating and writing bills so the platform can be made into policy and when it's policy and passed in the House of Commons and through the Senate, it will then be the law of the land. And whatever the law is will govern our behavior and our responsibility as Christians, citizens, is to submit to that. Jesus, not by means of election, but by the victory of the campaign of the cross, Jesus has been given the highest position authority above all governments 
any prime minister, any president, any earthly king, because he's enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And from heaven, the prince of peace governs the domain of the church with the rule of peace. We've been saved to peace. We are called together in one body in peace. So Christian, in submitting to Christ, we allow his peace to govern our lives. It's a type of peace that that isn't just the peace you get when you're on vacation. It's easy to have peace when you're sitting on a dock in Muskoka. It's easy to have rest when you're sitting on a beach under the sun. Now, the type of peace that we have is a peace that extends to the intangible sense of ourself that you can't touch. It's a peace that allows your soul to have rest, even though there's a storm raging around you. Do you have that type of peace? When you have that peace, it changes your perspective in the way that you live. In two ways, I think this text tells us. First, peace allows you to actually give thanks. Look at the text. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. But how can you be thankful when you don't have peace? First Thessalonians says that it's God's will for us to give thanks in all circumstances. How can I give thanks in all circumstances if I don't have peace in any circumstance? Peace is hard to come by. You might have peace when you wake up and you read your Bible with morning devotions, but then your kids wake up and peace is gone. And then you get into your car and have a nice quiet drive to work or a simple commute on the go train downtown, but as soon as you get to work, peace is gone. And then you get quiet time for lunch, but then you go back to work and peace is gone. And then you go back home for your commute and you're okay, but then you get home and everything's crazy and peace is gone. Peace so easily escapes us like a child is escaped, excuse me, like fireflies escape a child trying to catch them. I've tried catching fireflies before. Even in my adulthood, it was actually kind of fun. I was up in my cottage and it was pitch black outside, but I saw little blinking lights. I was like, those are fireflies, so I tried to, tried to follow them. And I saw them blink, and as soon as I thought I would catch it and I would reach out and grab it, it's already blinking over here. Then I would turn my trajectory toward the other way, and then I would think I would have it and reach out to grab it, and it's already gone. And that's what peace is like. Sociologists even call our generation and our culture, our age, they call it the age of anxiety. How can we find peace when we live in an age of anxiety? I would wonder, friend, if you have a restless soul, are you submitting to Christ in the way that his authorities actually do? If we don't have peace, I would venture that we're not well submitting to Christ's authority. What makes your heart restless? I know what makes mine. I know what, it, I know what it's like to be fearful about assignments at school. I know what it's like to be overwhelmed with projects at work. I know what it's like to be uneasy about relationships that are strained. I know what it's like to be angry about circumstances that are beyond my control. 
Peace often escapes me when one of three things happens. One, peace escapes me when the results I want are beyond my control to get them. Or also, peace escapes me when I'm trying to control others' behavior myself. Why won't you just do this? Rather than trusting that God will change their heart just like God changed my heart. But thirdly, peace most often escapes me when I foolishly procrastinate and when I put off my necessary responsibilities to enjoy unnecessary leisure and pleasure. What about you? What causes your soul to be restless? What keeps you from giving thanks? Peace of mind and peace with others only becomes only comes because we have peace with God. We can only have peace horizontally and internally if we have peace vertically. Romans chapter five, verse one says, since then we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Maybe you've never truly found peace. As I said last week, so I'd say again, St. Augustine, the ancient theologian wrote, our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. If you've never truly found rest, unless you're at a beach, watching a game, or at the dock, and the intangible sense of yourself has always been stirring and stirring and stirring and stirring, and you've always felt guilt and shame from your, shame from your past and guilt in your present and fear in the future, maybe the problem is you don't have peace with God. And the reason you don't have peace with God if you have not, is because you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not surprising you have, don't have peace. Because if you're still living a life of sin that doesn't submit to God's authority by faith in Jesus, then God considers you not his child, but his enemy. And you could have arms open to the Prince of Peace, welcoming the peace that surpasses all understanding, but you're keeping him at an arm's distance. But if you admit that you're living contrary to God's way and you admit that your sin that does make you an enemy of him, if you believe that Jesus died in your place when he died on a cross for your forgiveness, to suffer your penalty, and you ask God for forgiveness, then he'll wipe your slate clean. No more guilt of the past, No more shame in the present. No more fear in the future. By faith in Jesus, your past is forgiven. Your present is beloved and your future is secure and eternal hope. And you can have peace when you submit to the Prince of Peace. Your life may have felt like you've been walking around on sinking sand every turn you make. But when you submit to Christ, you can have peace in your heart and then you can have relationships also that are marked by peace. As Ephesians chapter four, verse three says, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace because I have peace in my heart. If I see that there's something that is restricting peace from us, I'll be like, all right, let's, let's put it on the table. Did I do something? Did you do something? Our relationship together matters more than that thing because we are children of God. So let's, hurt happens, but reconciliation is right. 
And as we've been forgiven, so we should forgive others. And we can strive for peace when we let Christ's peace rule in our hearts. You may feel like your whole life has been walking around in sinking sand, but you can be governed by peace, guided by love, and you can turn to the solid foundation of living your life in a way that is grounded in truth. That's the third virtue that we need to put on if we're gonna be the type of church that beholds God's glory and worship and belongs together in unity. We need to be grounded in truth. What do I mean by grounded in truth? Look at the text with me, verse 16. It says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Grounded in truth is what I mean when the scriptures say that the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ could also be translated from the original language, the word about Christ or the message concerning Christ. It's the epicenter of the scripture, which is the gospel. That Jesus, in fulfillment of all the promises of the law of Moses and the Psalms written by David and the minor and major prophets, Jesus, in fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, is the promised Savior who died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead. And through whom we can look forward now to the hope of the coming kingdom of Christ. The word of Christ is the message of the Bible. And if we're going to be grounded by truth, we need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. What does that mean? Have you ever been to somebody's home where they told you, make yourself a home? What what do they mean by that? If we were being sincere, what would we mean truly by saying, make yourself at home? I think we would mean, you know, whatever you do in your home, feel free to do in this home, in my home. We are told to let the word of Christ be the primary occupant of our minds and of our hearts. And to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly means that the home of your heart and your mind isn't like a bed and breakfast that you can come and go. You're going to just check in, check out, as long as at these times, and and, um, have the meal with us as long as it's at this time. And please don't change the temperature settings on the dial, but you're welcome here. Right? No, it's like, hey, here are the keys. Change the Wi-Fi password if you want. Paint the walls if you don't like the color. Change the decor. Rearrange the furniture. God, you are the primary resident of my mind and my heart. Is the word of God the thing that dwells in your mind and your heart. Because when God's word dwells richly in us, God then lives in us and can live through us. That's the result of what happens when we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We will teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The overflow of the word of Christ dwelling in us is the word of Christ emanating out from us so that others are blessed from the blessing that we have received. 
Verse 16 is actually unique in all of the New Testament. Theologians recognize that verse 16 is one of the few instances in the New Testament where we see a glimpse into how the early church in the first century organized their church services. The church service in the uh, first century church from this passage here says that it was marked by the preaching of the word of God and various types of singing that naturally followed from hearing God's word. And since that's what's characterized the first people in the earliest churches, you can expect, friends, that that's what will characterize our church in our services. That you will always hear worship in spirit and in truth and bold, unapologetic preaching. Always. Regardless of whether the tide of culture bends back and forth and sways back and forth, always expect bold preaching from this pulpit. But not a boldness that emanates from the strength of personality of the preacher, but a boldness that is due to the strength of the message of the word. Unapologetic, not because of the courage or experience of the personality of the preacher, but unapologetically because of the truthfulness of the message that has universal application and eternal consequences. If that's the type of preaching you can expect from this church, what type of listeners should we be to the preaching of God's word? I think we should be three types of listeners. First, I think we should be critical listeners to the preaching of God's word. In the same way that the Berean Christians were critical listeners when they heard the word preached in Acts 17. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul was traveling throughout the Macedonian region and he came to a city called Berea. The previous town that he was in would not listen to him. But in Berea, there was a group of noble Jewish people who listened to the word. And then it says that they carefully examined the scriptures to see whether the things that Paul said was from God. They didn't just take the preaching of the word at face and say, great. Because of your reputation, I'll listen to it. Because you have a lot of followers on Instagram, I'll listen to it. Because you're the top podcast, I'll listen to it. Because you have a lot of views on YouTube, I'll listen to it. No. Because it accords with the truth of the scripture, I will gladly listen to it. We should be critical listeners. We should be teachable listeners. Unlike the fools in the book of Proverbs. Because if you're stubborn, this isn't going to sound flattering at all. But if you will be stubborn and unwilling to listen to godly preaching, then you're about as dumb as a donkey. How do you get an animal to move that won't listen to you? Animals don't speak your language. <laughs> if you want a donkey to carry something, but it's not listening to your instructions, the way you... You, them get it to move is by offering it some kind of different stimuli. And if the stimuli of language isn't enough, the stimuli of pain is the only thing that will move it. Proverbs 23, 26 verse 3 says, a whip 
for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. If, if you're unwilling to listen to godly teaching, you're about as dumb as a donkey. But oh, that we would be a tender-hearted church, not a stubborn, stiff-necked church. I believe in better things for our church. I see week by week teachable people who want to hear God's word, who are willing to critically examine the message. And I see people who are this third type of listener that we should be. We should be critical listeners, we should be teachable listeners, and we should be worshipful listeners. Like in Psalm, in the Psalms, Psalm 34 verse 2 to 3 says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Notice the interaction in that verse between the worship leader and the humble listener. Hey, I'm boasting in God. If you're humble, hear and be glad. Okay, <laughs> let, us, let us exalt his name together. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. The worship leader boasted in God, the humble herd was glad, and together they sang a song in exalting the glory of God. When the word is received, it naturally overflows in worshipful, thankful singing. See, in the church, singing has two functions. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 tells us these functions. One of the functions is that when we sing loudly so that we hear each other in response to the word of God, we encourage each other. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Your voice joined collectively with other voices, like singing the national anthem of our country, reminds each other of our common identity in the universal transcendent truth of the scriptures which we sing out in song. That's one of the functions of singing. We edify each other. We build each other up in truth. But the primary function of singing isn't horizontally, it's vertically. It's not directed towards each other, as the passage says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Sam might be on the stage and have his voice amplified, but that doesn't mean that we are the audience of his performance. No, that means that he's the choir director. And we all, as a choir, are singing to an audience of one, our God and Father in heaven. Let's let God's word have this effect in our lives, that we would receive it richly, that we would gladly let it overflow in song and worship to God. This is God's type of church, one that beholds his glory in thankful worship and then one that belongs together in unity because we are grounded in truth, governed by peace and guided by love. Do peace, love, and truth mark your life in this church? Or are you the type of person who's just comfortable strolling through the door at 11.15, getting a coffee and not even talking to a soul on the way out? Whether we're singing to God, whether listening to a sermon, whether we're greeting one another, giving offering, praying to each other, with each other, going to small group, Verse 17 should summarize everything we do as God's type of church. And I'll close with this idea. Verse 17, whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. To do something in the name of someone else is to act in such a way that you know you'll get their approval. Could Christ sign his name on your way of life in this church? In grade school, I remember if I wanted to go on a field trip, I had to get a permission form, right? Science class wants to go to the zoo. So mom and dad, can you sign your name here and approve this activity? Art class, music class wants to go to the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Can you sign your name here, mom and dad, and give me approval for this activity? Mom and dad, if your kid came home and they said, gym class wants to take me to Las Vegas so I can watch cage fighting, are you writing your name on that permission form? Are you signing off in approval of that activity? Christians do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus because they know that everything reflects the name of the Lord Jesus. And striving for maturity as a church and reaching the fullness of Christian life means that everything I do, I want to do to an approval of who God is because of what he's done for me. Are you going to live like that? When we do this with thankfulness in our hearts, in a manner that is marked by love and peace and truth, it will result in a true unity in a unity where we know we belong and we want to keep coming back and a true purpose where we know that our contribution matters because I do it with a thankful heart and I do it for the glory of God. So church, tune up the band, put on your choir robes. Let's stand and worship God through song now.